Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a panel discussion centered around the films of the late Japanese filmmaker, Kiyu Yoshida, whose films we will be screening beginning this Friday, December 1st, in the new series, The Radical Cinema of Kiyu Yoshida, through Friday, December 8th, with all films presented either at Film at Lincoln Center or Japan Society. The following conversation about the celebrated filmmaker features Japanese director Atsushi Funahashi, whose films include Echoes, Big River, and Nuclear Nation, Ethan Spigland, a filmmaker and professor in the Humanities and Media Studies Department at Pratt Institute, and FLC programmer Dan Sullivan. Get tickets to the radical cinema of Kiyu Yoshida at filmlink.org Yoshida. Immediately proceeding this conversation, stay tuned for an NYFF 61 Q&A with the creative team and cast of The Sweet East, a spotlight selection of this year's festival opening in select theaters this Friday. Listen to director Sean Price-Williams, writer Nick Pinkerton, and cast members Talia Ryder, Simon Rex, Jeremy O'Harris, Rish Shah, and Earl Cave discuss their deranged and hilarious autopsy of contemporary U.S. life in a lively and humorous conversation, moderated by FLC Senior Director of Programming, Florence Almozini. Hello and, and welcome uh, to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Uh, I'm Dan Sullivan. I'm uh, one of the programmers at Film at Lincoln Center, and I'm uh, very honored to be joined uh, today by by Atsushi Funahashi, the the filmmaker and uh, and and who's also uh, who's published a, a, a book uh, with the subject of our forthcoming uh, uh, retrospective on the work of Kiji Yoshida, um, uh, and we're also um, we're also being joined by uh, the scholar and filmmaker and uh, critic uh, Ethan Spigland, a uh, professor at Pratt University here in here in Brooklyn, um, who uh, is likewise uh, uh, for me like a real um, uh, Yoshida uh, expert, someone who I've talked uh, who I've talked uh, to about Yoshida many times over the years. Um, so I'm I'm very happy that they could both join us to. Um, talk a bit about Yoshida's life and work to sort of establish the context for our upcoming retrospective. Um, so just before we get into the discussion, uh, the radical cinema of Kijo Yoshida uh, will run at Film at Lincoln Center from December uh, 1st uh, to the 7th. And then on December 8th, we'll have our concluding screenings uh, as a special co-presentation at Japan Society here in New York. Um, We'll be in total. We'll be showing uh, sixteen of uh, Yoshida's uh, feature films. So, um, to my recollection, this will be the most expansive uh, retrospective of, of his work um, in the United States. I mean, uh, Funahashi San. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I think maybe ever, but uh, but at least like in a long time. Um, yeah. Um, so so yeah. Um, I thought it would make sense for us to sort of begin towards the beginning and talk about um, uh, uh, Yoshida-san's uh, early years um, uh, in in the Japanese film industry as that sort of establishes the foundation for, um, for the rest of his career. 
And so, uh, and so Funahashi-san, um, I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about um, about the 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 kind of the context um, for Yoshida's earliest films. Um, he makes them within uh, the Japanese studio system, uh, which he would later uh, leave. Um, and that's like another important part of his career. But um, but maybe you could tell us a bit about these um, about this earliest stage of his career, sort of the um, the industrial the film industrial context for the films that he makes in the 1960s and about and also about this inevitable encounter he has with uh, Mariko Okada, who um, becomes his most important collaborator uh, uh, going forward and and sort of. So yeah, can you tell us about about that moment and a little bit about that moment in Yoshida's uh, career? Sure. Um, I and the Yoshida son uh, wrote co-wrote a book together, uh, and this, uh, it's called "The Unknown Language of uh, Cinema." And uh, uh, so through the writing the book, like we talked about his uh, career entire through, and uh, you know from the beginning to the end, really, and then. He always repeated that he became a filmmaker, not that uh, he wanted to be. He he didn't want it to be like he he just have to make ends meet. So he just got the job at the Shochiku Ofuna Studio in the late 1950s. And um, from my point of view, I think uh, there is no other Japanese film director who has approached uh, his works with as much distance from the contemporary values as Kiju Yoshida. He's always different from the, his contemporary film, other filmmakers. And um, at the Shochiku Ofuna studio, he served as an assistant director at the beginning to Kino, uh, Keisuke Kinoshita and other filmmakers that, like uh, who supported the golden era of Japanese cinema in the 1940s and 50s. And he was also a close friend, or should I say, tense friendship with Yasujiro Ozu. And those gave the impression, I think that could give the impression that Yoshida was a major commercial director. But in fact, he was not. He was up exactly, exactly the opposite. Um, he denied the stereotypes of Japanese cinema, and he that was inherited by the studios, and he created the antithesis of those established films, and he called them anti-cinema, and that's what I want to uh, discuss more about it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's really interesting. And did he actually did he actually assist? Was he an assistant to Ozu on any of Ozu's actual productions? No, nope. uh, nope. actually, guys, you know, he was a good, just a good, close friend. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, one thing I find interesting is, you know, um, Yoshida and Oshima and their generation, they, uh, although they're right, working at Shochiku, but they were kind of rebellious and critical of the older guard, right, of, of the filmmakers of Ozu's generation. Uh, and also... Um, critical of like the generation of Kinoshita and Kurosawa, right? Who they called the humanist filmmakers in a certain way that they called kind of post -war, right uh, post war humanism. Um, but it's interesting, I think, that later, right, that 
Yoshida has this book on Ozu, which is really extraordinary. And it seems like later in his life, in his career, he came to appreciate certain things about Ozu's approach. And when you think about it, there are some really interesting connections, right? Like this, um, a certain kind of distance, um, um, a kind of uh, desire not to manipulate the audience in a certain way. And this kind of precise kind of obsession with form and formalism in a way is extraordinary sense of composition. So um, to set up the context a little more uh, correctly, the, you know, at the beginning of his career, Yoshida was promoted as a Shochiku Nouvelle Vogue, along with the Nagisa Oshima and Masahiro Shinoda, uh, beginning of the 60s. And then... Um, you know, it, it was just uh, the commercial label. And then, you know, so they are not really similar at all. And recently, actually last year, Shochiku Studio uh, admitted that. They, they, they just said it was just a commercial branding and that is nothing to do with their film, film aesthetics. So like, it's, I, I don't think it's uh, right to put together the Yoshida with the Nagisa Oshima and the Shochiku, uh, the, uh, you know, Masahiro Shinoda, just because they are from the same studio and the same era. Right. So it wasn't a movement or anything like that. It was something that um, the press and the journalists kind of created, right? Um, yes, yes. I mean, similar with the French New Wave as well. But... Yeah, I was going to say, in, in a sense, you could almost make that argument about like every, all like almost all of the movements uh, that we talk about in film history that don't directly stem from like a manifesto or some sort of unifying philosophy that all the filmmakers share. Because, um, you know, I know that during his lifetime, Yoshida did not appreciate being uh, compared to Oshima and so on. But I think, um, right. you know, looking at the films now, you know, in 2023, I think, you know, there are, or at least there, there in some of Oshima's films, you can detect uh, maybe a similar spirit or attitude um, about cinema, which maybe unifies them more than any, like, any specific thing stylistically, right? Yeah, one thing I found interesting is that you know, both Oshima and uh, Yoshida wrote a lot of film criticism and, and film theory, very little of it translated into English, sadly. But I found it very interesting that they both wrote essays on this notion of self-negation, right? And the importance of like self-negation for them in relation to, to the way they made their films. Um, you know, which didn't necessarily mean exactly the same thing for both of them, but for Yoshida, that was um, in some ways an attempt to get outside of himself as the auteur to, uh, he believed that the, um, um, he was against sort of this kind of prefabricated commercial films that were very kind of selling a certain product to an audience and wanted to create something more open, something more in dialogue with the audience, right? It seems like for him, film is always something relational between the director and the audience between um, the director and the actors, performers. And he, he didn't necessarily want to impose a meaning onto his images, onto his will, uh, onto um, uh, his film. In fact, uh, the uh, Yoshida was uh, conscious of what was going on back then in France. Uh, uh, you know, he denied back, the, you know, when he made uh, Good for Nothing in 1960, 
that his the, the ending of the film was very similar to the ending of Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Breathless. And everybody talked about it. And then back then, he denied he, he saw the film. But uh, towards the end of his career, actually, after I started talking to him, like uh, five or six years ago, he, he said he saw it. Actually, <laughs> uh, he so he it's uh, his remarks changed uh, in the in years. Uh, so uh, I I personally think he saw it before he made the, his debut film, and uh, so I I I definitely definitely think that he was conscious of what the Godard was doing at at the same era. Yeah, yeah, and and one thing one thing I think he shares with with. Uh with Godard uh, to some degree, but yeah, and, and maybe also with Oshima a little bit, you know, there's like the famous bit about Oshima saying, resenting being called the Japanese Godard, and he said Godard was the French Oshima, um, uh, uh, you know, but, this, but a kind of um, responsiveness uh, to political um, political trends, like the political climate um, in which he is making his films, and that also motivates um, uh, you know, at least in part, his movement away from like the commercial Japanese film industry and and starts pursuing um, his own work on his own terms um, <laughs> or more focusedly. And so I was hoping, I, I think maybe both of you could speak to this a little bit um, uh, about some, like um, uh, the kind of the relationship between uh, cinema and politics in Japan in the, in the late 1960s going into the early 1970s because this is kind of the, um, uh, the, this is sort of the the crucible from which his the the trilogy this trilogy um, uh, comprised of uh, Eros plus Massacre, uh, Heroic Purgatory, and Coup d'État, um, three of his best known films. Um, these films feel like a direct response to this kind of swirl of political forces and and things going on in Japan at the time. Um, and so maybe we could, yeah, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about um, about uh, what was happening politically in Japan at the time and how it sort of contributed to um, to to Yoshida's uh, shift into um, making these films that are very much about like 20, you know, uh, 20th century Japanese history. Sure. Um, you know, like it, it was a really political era. Uh, in uh, as you may know, like it's it's everybody you know or or you know it it was the the generation before the before me and uh, before I was born. But uh, it's uh, as I heard from Yoshida and uh, the, and uh, other filmmakers, it's um uh, it's you know lots of political movies like were made and also at the same time you know the Yukio Mishima like was a who the liter you know. The, the famous writer like the, he he was really um, he committed a suicide and back then and then it's it's lots of things happening at the, at that era and uh, I talking about the Yoshida's take that uh, as I said at the beginning he took a distance from what was going on at the same uh, you know at the same time I think um, uh, the what was common to Yoshida's films, uh, during this uh, political period was a skeptical look at the patriarchal society. You, yes, uh, you know, it's the power always distorts the society and history, you know, 
the winner writes the history. So you have to be skeptical the, of what's written in the history book. So the trilogy of Eros and Massacre, Kudeta and Heroic Purgatory uh, criticize the um, conventional interpretations of history. That's what I think. And uh, um, he instead, he explored its differ uh, different possibilities. The, the event could have been like this or could have been like that. So showing the multiple possibilities of what the history might have been, he portrayed the uncertainty of human existence in depth. That's what I think. And, and also with regard to, you were saying about Eros and Massacre, let's say with those, you know, three possible interpret, undecidable interpretations on how Osugi was killed or the merging of past and present, which one thing I really find fascinating in, in, in much of his cinema is this kind of, is the merging of past, present and, you know, the imaginary. Um, but with regard to history, um, also seems to me a commentary on the impossibility of, um, of knowing the truth of history, right? Of, of, you know, especially through a film, you know, of uncovering or, um, you know, determining the definitive truth about any historical event, about the historical past. And then I also think it was important for him to kind of always, in relation to history, to, to see it through the present, the significance of history through the present moment to create a future, as you were saying, the emphasis being on the present or the future, to kind of, to, to discover what was usable in history, um, to reimagine the present and future of Japanese society. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this a bit earlier, and and I mean, this is a very vulgar way of of attempting to like, I don't know, diagram Yoshida's uh, career. But you might almost say that like the first phase of his career was like concerned with the present, the second phase of his career was concerned with the near past, and then the third phase of his career after he comes out of he comes back from retirement is almost about eternity, and it's about um uh uh something something even bigger than just distinctions between the past present and and the and the future and so yeah with that with that in mind i wanted to turn towards this third phase of his career after he um you know following uh coup d'etat he basically announced he basically declares his work in cinema done um uh and and retires from from feature filmmaking uh until he reemerges uh in the 1980s with his film uh, uh which in English is entitled a promise um and um and yeah I was I was uh hoping we could we could just talk a little bit in about um about uh sort of different how his approach or your sense of how his approach to making films differed um in this in the 80s versus what we saw in the 1960s and the early 70s I think there, you can at least detect like a certain a kind of shift in his thematic some of his thematic concerns maybe in a promise and uh in Wuthering Heights and um you will also feel it I think at the uh at the level of uh form you know at the formal level um where of course it makes sense you know someone someone working in the 1980s would make films that feel different than 
someone making similar films in the late 1960s and early 1970s. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, um, what are your guys' sort of uh, impressions of, of um, changes that maybe took place uh, with Yoshida's approach uh, to cinema once he um, comes out of retirement in the, in the 80s? I don't know too much about the biographical details. I know he, one thing that led to his, right, retirement was, right, he had like a tumor in his stomach and went a very serious under, uh, you know, operation and was recovering from that. Spent, I know he spent some time in Mexico. Um, I mean, um, just based on not so much on his writings or biographical information, but on, on viewing the films. I mean, one thing that strikes me about like Wuthering Heights is first of all, it's his, it's his only real period film or, you know, um, right. His, his, own, his only real Jidaigeki. And it's, I think it's a really fascinating film, but it's also like, even in terms of, there's something a little more, you know, classic about it in a way, like even in terms of the compositions, um, you know, certainly the, you know, although it's a really fascinating adaptation, right, which is drawing on Bronte, but also Georges Bataille. <laughs> Apparently Georges Bataille was an influ a big influence on it. Um, yeah, and I love the kind of primordial take it has on, on the story, on the Weathering Heights story. But just to, just, um, you know, his, I'm just thinking, because one thing I love so much about Yoshida and some of the earlier work and like that the period of the anti-melodramas is this really kind of eccentric sense of composition and camera movement, point of view, very strange points of views, um, use of reflections and mirrors and fragmentation. And you know, like Wuthering Heights, there was something real, like almost a little simpler and more classic in a way about it in a certain way. But almost, almost like as a, almost kind of like a, as a uh not an exercise but as a gesture of like look i can do this i can do this as well it's not just um it doesn't have to just be off kilter staccato uh 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 very like stylistically um freewheeling and kind of idea second there's there i agree with i agree with you that even though it's it's um the film is quite strange in a lot of ways but it's also there's something about its execution that maybe feels more classical compared to um you know like films in the trilogy or 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 so on but um it's almost like uh uh it's almost like it, it this feeling uh, that it had to be that way, that this film, that film at that stage of his life, it had to be done in that, in that way, you know? I also, I also wonder, it's just conjecture, but you know, that, you know, he didn't, he didn't really make a film like that, certainly a Jidaigeki earlier in his career. And I wonder if he, you know, you know, in relation to his rebellious generation felt that something like that would have felt too traditional or, be associated with a more traditional kind of genre in some way. Although he certainly, you know, took on like the melodrama and did something, you know, really kind of fascinating with it, deconstructed the melodrama. But mm -hmm. I wonder if maybe later in his life, he felt like he didn't have to prove anything you know, in relation to that and was able to just tap into something very, uh, you know, classic in a way. And I mean, still, yeah, it was still I a strange and unique film, you know, 
I agree with you. Look, it's, I think it's that he came back to this the filmmaking after the long absence. Um, according to him, um, it 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 was just because the uh you know the novels like was uh, you know uh, submitted to him to consider, and that was the uh, a promise. And after that, the Wuthering Heights was uh, the same too. Like it's just uh, someone suggested to him, like, okay, can you just make the film out of it? So like he was, um, he told me that like, it was just a coincidence. So in that way, like it was not really, um, he was not eager to like uh, the revolutionize the film language or anything. Like he, you know, he was not that forwardy anymore. And uh, but it's uh, to to me like there is some something in common in uh, uh, Yoshida's style too. It's uh, which is the the all the shots are so beautiful. It was not really like a great composition or anything, but it, it's uh, like this uh, timelessness. You know, like it's uh, that's what I feel about it. And um, you know, uh, um, he said he always said that like, it's his. Uh, there are so many films that are really showing off. The greatness of the shots, the but uh, the film, uh, the cinema has to be uh, there's something to be seen. So the images which are open to the viewers, not really like forcing the viewers to think. It's more like it has to be more passive. It's the images to be seen, not to show off something. That's that's something he always said that, and then that's you know the images that make the viewers to think, uh, and then you know just uh, cultivate in the depth. That's what he I think uh, um, you know eager to depict all the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it seemed like he was really interested in like throughout his career this the sense that the image is something that's open, right? That's open to interpretation where the audience participates and can think for themselves. But, you know, he talks about, I forgot where in an interview about, you know, already in relation to his earlier films, like instead of, you know, composing like um, an actor, a close-up of an actor at the center of the frame, having the actor at the edge of the frame, per perhaps having, you know, his or her face half cut off so that in a certain sense, there's something off screen, right? Invoking the off screen, which needs to be completed, right? Which is somehow open. Um, but I see what you mean, how that connects maybe even to this kind of later, in some ways more classical, but self-effacing style that that's not, it doesn't, it's not showing off in, in any way, but, um, it also, it also strikes me that maybe some of the, uh, I mean, specifically like in the case of Wuthering Heights, maybe some of the, the kind of uncanny feeling has to do with the, um, the collapse of uh, multiple times into into one film. So it's, you know, um, it's Yoshida working as a filmmaker in the 1980s, making a film which adapts a, uh, you know, the Bronte novel from the 19th century, which uh, is then being transposed into uh, into feudal Japan. And it's this kind of over this is like, um, historical overdetermination, which kind of causes everything to overheat and you arrive at this like um this you know the time of that film feels distinct from the time period that it represents it feels distinct from the time period that's in the original the source novel and it feels distinct from the time in which Yoshida was making the film so I think um that's kind of the that's part of the miracle of that 
of that film or like maybe it's alchemy. Um, but we were um, we were also talking about, you know, um, uh, earlier where uh, I think Atsushi uh, uh, had mentioned uh, a bit about um, about um, uh, Yoshida's critique of patriarchal uh, society uh, in Japan as, 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 you know, as part of his project. And I think that that is um, especially manifest in his work with actresses throughout his career. And of course, and of course, um, that's nowhere better expressed than in the most important collaboration of, of his career with uh, Mariko Okada, um, who starred most of his film and worked on most of his films with him and, and so on. And, um, uh, Funahashi san, I was hoping you could you could tell us a little bit about um sort of what you think uh or just what your kind of reflections are on Yoshida's uh work with actresses uh specifically and sort of the place of that in his work and maybe more specifically in the case of his collaboration with with uh Okada san. Yeah, um I think she's she was the one who started talking to him when they were still belong to Shochiku of Huna Studio and then she uh, wanted him to be the director of Akito Springs. Uh, actually they had a contact before that film but uh, actually the film didn't happen. So and when uh, Okada Mariko chose the Akito Springs to be the this um, uh, celebration of a uh, hundred films of her career she was uh, at the age of 29 she already made she had already made a hundred films that was amazing so her hundredth film sent her you know the the Akito Springs like he she wanted to produce herself because the Akito Springs was the novel she long been like wanting to make by herself as a producer and uh, she wanted to act as a, a main role and then she contacted Yoshida and he said um, you know I read the novel and he turned it down and then she said okay why why was that she was so push, pushing actually so she convinced Yoshida and then he uh, accepted in the condition that he can rewrite the entire script by himself and then so it's it's when you read the original novel actually it does it's not really um, uh, it, it's not similar at all to the <laughs> to the film at all, and then so the um that's how the, their collaboration started, and that was the masterpiece Akito Springs, and I still love the the film and the the you know the it's a one of the 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 biggest uh, commercial success in his career too, and then. After a few films at the Shochiku, they have to leave because the, it's uh, uh, Escape from Japan. It's an action film, uh, which the uh, they, the Shochiku studio cut it, the ending, uh, without the consent of Yoshida. And uh, they went to the actual honeymoon to the, the Europe. And when he they came back from the uh, Europe, like uh, he found out the film was cut. So that's why like, they left the studio. And since then, they started, uh, uh, they formed a company. It's called the Gendai Egasha, uh, means the, uh, uh, the contemporary film company. That's it's a direct, con con you know. Then 
uh, and they they started making films together. Uh, most of them because starred uh, Mariko Okada as the main role, and then it's a, that's the uh, mid career of Yoshida Kiju, and uh, um, the Woman of the Lake, the uh, the Affair, uh, Flame and Women, and Affair in the Snow. Those are like a very very beautiful films, and it's very uh, simple and minimalistic, uh, you know, uh, film style. And uh, those are uh, those. Uh, one thing like I can say in common in those four films, I believe those uh, three of them are, will be screened at the uh, uh, you know Lincoln Center this time. And those films criticize the Japan's history of uh, gender discrimination. That's what I say. I think. It's a uh, um, uh, male-centered society is still dominate in East Asia, Japan, and uh, human rights awareness and the gender awareness were far behind. Still now too, but uh, he criticized this uh, discrimination within the uh, patriarchal society. And, and uh, yeah, no, just to add, just to add to that, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. really interesting. Um, but just to yeah. add to that, and of course. And very much through her, her participation, we get a female perspective, right? And in relation to those stories um, and in relation to more traditional Japanese melodramatic films and an exploration of female desire, right? Um, but one, one thing that's interesting too in relation to that period, you know, once, once they formed their own company, of course, Okada was such a huge star and it was really right. It was her name and, and her fame that enabled Yoshida to make all these experimental, you know, strange films. Um, there's also the role of ATG and on those things, but um, right, it was actually the level of her celebrity, right, which enabled them to to get the financing right for those kind of projects. Yeah, um, yeah, and um, and. I know this will feel fast, but uh, actually, I'm about to ask my concluding uh, question. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, um, I think this uh, this is, discussion has been really uh, valuable uh, for me, at least, um, in sort of helping to frame some of my thinking as as the retrospective um, approaches. But um, I, I thought it might be it might be uh, good um, uh, since I have you both here uh, to maybe share like. As a as a parting sort of thing to share some recommendations just from Yoshida's body of work, like if you had to pick and choose like films that you feel to be very um, indicative of of his of his uh, of his career, um, uh, you know, uh, I have you know I have my things that I would suggest to everyone, but maybe that's manifest in, you know, the the way that we've been presenting the series. But um, but I'd love to hear from both of you, you know, just like want, you know, a film or two that maybe you you would really encourage people who don't know Yoshida's work that well to come check out uh, while the retrospective is going on, because this is going to be a pretty rare opportunity, I think, to see a lot of his films on 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter in a in a cinema. And who knows, who knows when this opportunity will come back again. So maybe, um, Ethan, do you want, maybe you could start this one? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard question, but one one I would definitely recommend is a story written with water um, because among other things, it was really the first film he made with more complete freedom once, you know, under 
the ages of his new company. And there's really, um, there's a sense of experimentation of being able to try all these things that maybe he couldn't have done before. Um, and I find the film fascinating in the way it kind of merges, um, again, past, present, and um, sort of the imagination um, in this kind of seamless and indiscernible ways, right? Where there's just these seamless shifts from present to past, to dreams, to fantasies, and stylistically, it's really extraordinary. Some, some of you know, the compositions, the way he's really pushing things, playing with disjunctions and um, eccentric compositions. But, but and when I watch, I really get the sense of someone who had all these ideas he wasn't able to completely pursue in the studio system and suddenly able to just experiment and, and try all these things. Kind of like maybe like uh, someone really being permitted to think with the camera on their own terms uh, for mm -hmm. the first time in their career. Yeah, I think so. You know, certainly, you know, we we're talking a little bit about politics before and certainly Yoshida is very much a filmmaker concerned, as you said a while back, the about the relation, the relationship between aesthetics and politics. But I think very often, although the content of the films is important, the, um, you know, almost the effects and the stylistic effects are as important from a political perspective as the content. And let's uh, issue um, uh, for for um, for members of our audience who uh, perhaps um, this will be the first time they've had an opportunity to see a film by Yoshida. Um, what what would you uh, direct them to? I like personally. Uh, promise but uh, I don't recommend uh, to see the film from the first place actually it looks really conventional when you look at it uh, the straightforward uh, you know if you don't know the Yoshida and I highly recommend uh, watching the, his uh, career chronological way the um, so first uh, uh, in the studio era especially I would say uh, blood is dry it's a masterpiece, and eighteen who calls a storm. Those are other, another masterpiece too. And then um, you know it, it's very experimental within this uh, studio system. So it it looks really conventional setups, but uh, actually what he's trying to do, for example, eighteen who calls a storm, like it actually you uh, characterize the eighteen young um, uh, boys as one character. Which is impossible to do, you know, and it it it, it is a very interesting film, and also uh, the Akitsu Springs, uh, another masterpiece melodrama. So watch those uh, uh, studio era masterpieces, then move on to independent films, and as you know, those uh, uh, how he explored all those uh, uh, you know avant-garde compositions with those uh, uh, you know the uh, films with the Marie Mariko Kada. Then the uh, political trilogy are really massive too. It's a, it's a very interesting, especially uh, coup d'état. He's after making the film, he he said that he did everything he can do in the cinema expression. So he doesn't he has nothing to do. In that way, like it's, I think it's a coup d'état. It's really extreme beauty. Uh, that's what I think. And I after so. 
after reaching that point, and then he made uh, he took a big absence, and uh, how he came back to the film, which is the uh, based on the novel, the promise. So he has again, like he has this limitation. He has to go through this uh, uh, novel. Uh, he has to follow the novel, but uh, in a way, like it, it's a very minimalistic style. But uh, you can see how he's experimenting his style within that, and it's very interesting watching the film in that way. No, I, I, I very much agree, and and I think a lot of um, in revisiting a bunch of the films as we approach the retrospective and trying where I can to watch them chronologically, I think the arc. The arc of Yoshida Sun's career is um is real is really just uh, a marvelous thing to 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 examine. And so I I you know I I hope um people are gonna join us uh to to watch these beautiful films on um almost all of them uh on on film on celluloid uh during the retrospective. And um I just wanna thank you both uh so much for for doing this uh this with us for for availing yourselves and and uh yeah for all that you do to you know sort of um ensure that uh Yoshida's legacy is kind of appreciated as it should be so um so yeah thank you both and and we'll see you at uh and to you listening at home we'll 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 see you at Lincoln Center uh December 1st uh through the 8th uh for the radical cinema of Kiju Yoshida so thank you Smack in the middle of a high school trip to our nation's capital, self-possessed teen Lillian, the remarkably poised Talia Ryder, breaks off from her classmates, kicking off a journey straight down the rabbit hole of the new weird America. The directorial debut for cinematographer Sean Price Williams and screenwriter Nick Pinkerton, The Sweet East is unlike any American movie you've experienced before. Now please enjoy the conversation with the film's cast and creative team. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us for the Swedish North American premiere. And now I'm really excited to bring back to the stage the director, Sean Bryce William. I know I gotta bring everybody else out. Who's next? Is that, who's next? Nick, somebody? Nick, come on, Nick. Nick's, Nick's there. Nick, thanks again. I see Simon. Simon Rex, please come out. Uh, yeah. Some, Jeremy, Jeremy's in the wing. Jeremy O'Harris. Thank you. Rish Shaw. Yes, there he is. I'm guessing Earl, Earl Cave, and then Talia Ryder. I think we got brought up by age, and that was rude. <laughs> uh, not quite. Almost. Okay, I'm going to ask a question to Nick. Yeah, please. Yes. Yeah, skip me. Because this isn't a director's movie, by the way. This is like a whole thing. I mean, it's about me. It's like my story. It's my autobiography. But like, <laughs> it's really like it was made by a bunch of people. Yes. But if anything about it like was not pleasing to you, it was my fault. 
And if anything was sort of heartfelt and sweet, Sean added that. Okay, so, but you wrote the script with or thinking of Sean or working with Sean, or you just wrote the script? I wrote as, it thinking of Sean. Okay. As I am always thinking of because Sean. It was his, because it's his story? <laughs> <laughs> it's both of our stories. But can you talk a little bit about how long it took you to write the script and if Sean had any interaction with what? Sean, Sean, I mean, there's so much that Sean, like, added. Uh, I put the basic, like, infrastructure down, but uh, Sean was a consummate gag man throughout, and uh, it's hard to say where uh, where I, I end and he begins, but... Uh, like I and yeah, and it doesn't matter. And then we have we have the cast, and then where yeah. they begin and end, and it just was a very fluid thing. No, I mean we were it watching. Starts, oh, sorry. Yeah. It starts when we were born, and it ended when like yeah. the last day of shooting, as far as the script goes. I guess, yeah. I don't know. God, what a thing to say. That's very. That's <laughs> that's <laughs> Long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we were we were watching up in our little opera box up there, and like the great big laugh line, which is Io. Like, uh, the best actress is a woman who says yes. Like, I didn't write that shit at all. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah, the, and the, the big scene with Io and Jeremy was about uh, a third of a page. And then when they, when they went with it, it was, yeah, it was like six, seven minutes. And it, was, and it, it was this amazing thing where you could see they hit every part of the little bit, and then they... Fun surprises. Did you have anyone in mind, or who did you start with for casting? Well, when you we when, all, when we first started, you know, thinking of the movie, it was all fantasy anyway. So there was no like reality. It was like you know, okay, who's going to be Lawrence? It's going to be, you know, it could be somebody that was dead, you know, or something. And then it was like Bradley Cooper. Oh, yes, that's a good idea, right? You know, why not? It I was, think he was busy it wasn't with real. Show, so. Yeah, it wasn't real, so it didn't matter. As far as for Lillian, I mean, I think it was just, um, I mean, you know, I shouldn't say these things in front, but it was like, it just like some idea of a person that wasn't a real, you know, I don't, the, the truth was that, that Talia was the very first person that I met, you know, talking about the role, you know. Which is, so is yeah, I say this, it's like so embarrassing. You should like have to like interview 500 people before you find the person. She actually was the very first person. We talked to other people, but it just went right back to that. So it, it was, you know, I don't know. When we were writing it, it was like it was some middle-aged man's idea of, of what this character is, hoping that a real person would embody it and make it real. You know, I don't know. We didn't know who it was. Nick, help me. <laughs> I'm used to doing these in front of uh, non-English speaking crowds. Yeah, right. Or, and the translation, like you know, gives you time to think about how to like surf fix it. Over this. Yeah. You, should we do it in French? <laughs> Bien sûr. Okay. Oh, I hate his French. <laughs> Pourquoi pas? You don't, you can't say that. You watch a lot of movies with subtitles. Yeah. So you can't really pretend you don't. I respect the language. I don't speak it. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. Can we talk to the cast? As well, please. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I feel really fortunate to have these guys here because yeah. we've we've done a few screenings and we haven't had them, and it's just like to have the cast talk about it. It's 
it's pretty obscene to not have cast uh, speak about the films that they made. So. No, because I mean, once we see the film finished in the a brief version, I have to say, which is great, mm. it's really clear about the path you're taking about this idea of showing a weird new America and a picaresque journey, which could be like a candid style, but with Talia incorporating the, the role. But when you're shooting, you get like part of a script or some ideas and it changes all the time. So it's probably more difficult for you to embody a character when it's very unstructured. So I wanted to hear maybe like Talia to hear about your experience and how you embody and understood the character and were you happy to improvise or was it strongly directed or something like that? Um, I don't know. This was the most fun I've ever had making a movie. It felt like I figured out what acting meant to me in a lot of ways and to Lillian because she's obviously an actress. But um, yeah, Sean and Nick really trusted me as a teenager when I made this movie. Um, yeah. I understood Lillian, and they let me fly with that. And I'm, I'm really proud of what we made. I think it's a rare thing to be given the level of trust that they gave me in the dialogue and the story beyond the dialogue. And they, they gave me that gift, and I'm just really proud of what we made. I mean, you really anchor the film, and I think your performance is so strong that really, as a viewer, we just, like, follow you and we root for her. And even if sometimes we're like, she's so opaque. And <laughs> why is she thinking? Why is she going with there? But that's why it works. And it's not an easy performance to give. I don't know. Lillian's like a little, she's a little problematic. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. You don't, you don't get to see a lot of problematic girls on screen. And they, I, I, I understand being problematic. And they, they let me do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Simon, what about your amazing part? Because <laughs> yeah, it, it's what? not a problematic character. Oh, so it's, not at all. It was harder, I think. I, I, uh, I didn't understand most of what I was talking about that he wrote. <laughs> Quite honestly, I had to do a lot, a lot of Googling of words. I, I still don't even know what, is it picaresque? What's the word? Picaresque? What's the word? Picaresque. Yeah, I don't know, still don't know what that means. And you, well, you didn't say it, so you didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of words I don't, I still don't know really. I just had to pronounce. It was almost like I was speaking another language. It was like I was doing a, <laughs> like a French film or something because yeah, it was you, so you, foreign. His the, the dialogue that he wrote and the history and all these facts. I just had to do a lot of homework, and it was so long ago now that I actually think I forgot most of it. But <laughs> at the time, I was smart and learning a lot, and and I felt that like I was an intelligent person. Um, I, it made me, I was very humbling. I realized how not smart I am in real life, which is good to be humble. So thank you, Nick. Um, and, and of course, Sean, I let me play a lot. I didn't understand the words until you said oh, it, cool. actually. It, you had to translate it to me, honestly. Okay. No, I was, okay, I was the translator for Nick. Too. Even still, when we were editing it, I was, I was still figuring out okay. what some of it meant. Yeah. yeah I, and we cut the stuff out that I didn't understand. I, I, still, miss, I still miss D'Annunzio at Fiume. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that. that I, like was, that. I liked learning about that. But we had yeah. to cut it out because it was just too much. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff Problem cut out that was too much, I believe. I, I, you know, 
to yeah, it was uh, to play a, a professor who's a Nazi sympathizer, white supremacist. That was, you know, I'm half Jewish. That was that was not. We didn't know that also when we cast you. Yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> no, it wouldn't it's, have it's cast you three days. <laughs> we were editing it. As like, I was like, we Nazi? can tell in this shot, right? Right, right. right go profile. <laughs> um, so it was just fun. Like again, like you. Sean was just letting, you know, open to my ideas, kind of letting me play with it, suggest stuff. It was nice. To, I just felt like a very fun, loose setting. When the movie was shot separately by several months, I, if I'm not mistaken, you shot seasonally like one half of the movie and then I came on the second half. And so I kind of felt like I was like new to this existing group of people and like late to the party, but everyone welcomed me and was so great. And uh, yeah, it's just a great group of people to work with. We shot seasonally, but you can't tell because it was just, it was like 75 degrees in the winter when we shot and in the spring and the summer. But anyway, we were trying to get like snow and we were trying to really get, you know, East Coast, you get to seasons, and it, but it didn't really work out. Anyway, it was good we did it that way for other reasons. You didn't have the budget to bring fake snow? No, but then we put that in the movie that, you know, you want snow and you don't get it. So part of it. Uh, Jeremy, can you talk about your experience in the film? Uh, Sean just mentioned that the lenses, so your your, your parts. Yeah, actually, I'm, you could have had a few hours as well. Exactly. No, um, I, I actually before I start, I feel bad that I'm here uh, by myself because I'm I'm not playing one role. I'm playing like a two-headed monster, and Io is in the city, but she couldn't be here for personal reasons. So, can everyone in the theater just say we miss you, Io? We love you. Um, yeah, no, it was it's it was such a um, delight and an honor to be in Sean's world. I've known Sean for a long time. We met right before I applied to grad school. Um, when I was at the McDowell Colony, he was working with Michael Almereda at the at the McDowell Colony on like uh, their next movie. I think it was Marjorie Prime. Yeah, and they were I doing. Snuck, I snuck into the colony. Yeah, I don't I know if I'm to supposed there. to say that. Oops. Yeah. Anyway, um, no, but he was there, and I was like, "Who is this guy?" And like, Michael was like, "Oh, he's the best DP in America." And then I googled him, and Richard Brody had said the same thing, and I was like, "Ooh, pretension." Okay. Um, so I started watching his like New York movies, and I was I realized I'd seen some of them, and um, he became a great friend, like one of my favorite human beings to talk about, talk about movies with, talk about like weird. His brain is so bizarre. Um, and so when he asked me to do this movie, I said, yes, absolutely. Didn't even read the script. It was like, totally. Um, and um, then when I did read my scenes and knew what I was doing, I was so intimidated because I knew I was going to be doing it with Io, who is a true comedian, right? And he kept being like, use the lines, but don't. Just improv. You guys have fun. And like, Io's like, got it. Like, you know, she's yes-anding all around. And um, and I'm, 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 I had to keep up with her. And I, and it was, it was so, I felt so held and so taken care of by everyone there. And it's so easy to improv about loving an actress when you're looking at like baby Isabella Johnny over here. Like it's crazy. Um, so yeah, it was very, very fun. It was very chaotic. The scene with the chaos to like when we're shooting the scene where I'm yelling about the snow that was the first stuff we shot like when we were, the first stuff I shot was being driven up there on a random Wednesday by the hottest um uh, uh runner you guys had they did that on purpose <laughs> they wanted they wanted the pretty one to take me to set so I would get out of my house on time um but we should I show up and I'm like wait what are we doing like we're doing the last scene now um so it was very fun to sort of learn the part in reverse
Yeah, it sounded was very difficult for you to improvise anything. Like I believe it. <laughs> Uh, can we talk also uh, to you, Rich and, uh, and Earl? Sorry, uh, about you. So you shot first. Were you? You're not. You're never together in the in the film. No, we're not. No. Actually, Very you simple. shot first. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so it was also shot. It was. Yeah. Okay. It was backwards. Okay. So you come last, and you came first. Yeah. So yeah. I think um, day one we started with the scene in the forest where we're walking in the woods. Yeah, I was shitting myself. I was so like nervous because I was so like, I'm so fortunate to be part of this film. You know, I'm so grateful to be up here with these guys. I'm, I'm a fan of all of them. So yeah, me too. Um, you know, it was, yeah, it was it was a really like nerve wracking but beautiful day. And I mean, you saw it. It's it's stunning, and everything that they've filmed is just picturesque. <laughs> picturesque. Uh, picturesque. See, it's confusing. Yeah. By the way, I knew every word I said in the movie. By the way. Um, <laughs> There you go. Also, look look how good of an actor he is. You guys didn't know he was British, did you? Hey, what about me? Yeah, both of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was really fun. It was yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it was the very first the very first scene. We had a stretch of land about from those speakers to here, and we had three pages of dialogue. That it's supposed to be a path that they just walk on continuously. So we we stretched it out. It was you know I was. You know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was it was it was good. It's good, and then they and then they end up at that shot in the painting, yeah. that ridiculous shot where they were like in a painting all of a sudden, and we wanted to do that practically with mirrors, and we used a, a hundred year old uh, technique and yeah. uh, Schufton process, the Schufton process in the middle of a field, and it didn't really work, but it would have kind of it was kind of works, but and everything on the crew, everyone's just watching. What are you doing? Why are the actors, you know, five? 50 yards away and there's a mirror and anyway, we were working on it. I must say though, it was we're playing. really fun to play an unintentional creep um, because he's a lover of life, you know, and that's something we spoke about. Like yeah. he is a lover of life and he, you know. To me, I, he's the most relatable guy in the he, movie. He just didn't, he just didn't know how to show that love. Um, right, he never learned. Yeah, yeah he's just like me, thing. for real. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess uh, you wanted like a guy with like loads of dick piercings, so uh, you got him. Um, uh, yeah, no, again, like it was like a real pleasure to work with you guys. Like it was such a laugh. Um, and yeah, Talia, you were amazing. It was the hardest role to cast, huh? It was the hardest role to cast because we couldn't find anybody. Well, with. yeah, well, you found me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All along, yeah, on the internet. We changed his hair blonde so that no one would recognize him, but yeah. Is it the first time you're all together on stage watching the film? After watching it? Is it the first uh, time? Were we all okay, well, can? We, we all were together. Yeah. In Cannes, but we didn't get to talk. Why? If they don't let <laughs> and they didn't let us speak, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. So the language. No, it was yeah. called French. Director's Fortnight, so the director got to speak. Yeah, it was yeah. chic. <laughs> Wait, we yeah. didn't talk on stage. We, you know, we did. We did a little we discovered one. That and not I... with everybody. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, we discovered things about each other in a private right. thing. About how, uh, yeah, I thought yeah. you were a Dirt Nasty fan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, because I didn't cast anybody for any of the films they'd been in. Like, I'd never seen anybody in any movie. Hey, um, you know. How is that possible? You watch I don't, everything. Uh, I don't watch new movies, so... I hadn't you, you seen. You watch all your films in ten years. Yeah, sure. I don't know, but anyway, but I knew him. I saw. I ended up seeing Red Rocket, but after I had already like we had already decided to work together. But I knew him from his music 
his music career, which my friend Mike Belandic, who's here, like hit me too. Yeah, 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 he's here. I want to meet also, Mike. Also, shout also, out Mike uh, Andy Milonakis, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. Andy Milonakis. Oh. Let's start it. But I do have to say, the like I lied. This is not my first time working with Sean. I actually worked with Sean in Mike's movie Job's World, which you guys should get. Right. Um, and he grabbed me out of a bar and was like, "We need you in a scene." And yeah, because so because our original guy was in jail, and then yeah, so. But yeah, but yeah, no, I had never. I yeah, I still haven't seen yeah a lot of them. Yeah, but and Jacob also, I hadn't seen him in anything till after. I just, it was just people I liked. I don't know. Yeah. Is that so wrong? <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. I mean, I, I just hope no one will end in jail after what you just said with the last guy. In the oh, yeah. No, no, no. no. These are safe people. Uh, I, can we ask a final question to Nick, who didn't end up talking that much, even so? You. For once. <laughs> no, it's actually like... <laughs> Because by virtue of the fact, no, Sean's been like shooting a movie for the last like two and a half months. Talia's, everybody's had all this, you know, strike stuff going on. So I've just blabbered about this movie so fucking much. And honestly, I feel like really I'd love to hear anybody else's. He's been representing it and it's like tour in Eastern Europe and everything. It's true, actually, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. It's picaresque. Like no, when you watch the film now, do you really feel it's like the idea that you had in mind when you? Yeah, were completely it? rules. No, it's not. No, it's like it's not at all the thing I had in mind because it's so much bigger and richer and better and more complex than the thing that my fucking little peanut brain came up with. <laughs> because I had all of these people who you know, brought their own stuff to it and made it something just so much more fucking incredible than I could have ever imagined. So, like, if I was just watching what I'd imagine on screen, that would have sucked dick extremely hard. <laughs> I'm watching something that's, like, fucking huge and bigger than anything I could have ever come up with by myself, and it's really cool. Thank you. Also, also because no one said it, and I'm I'm mad at everyone now. Um, our movie comes out December first at one theater, the IFC Center. Uh, take out your phone, take a picture of this, talk about it, tell everyone, buy a ticket because you guys saw it and you loved it. Maybe you didn't, whatever, lie. Um, but like, let's keep independent cinema by cool people alive because I really like these guys and Bye. it's great. So, December first. Thanks, Jeremy. You're, you're very good in PR and marketing. I yeah, just didn't have the release date. I would have totally done it otherwise. <laughs> PR is what I want to do instead of writing, so. <laughs> They're going to make you walk down the street with, like, signs, you know. They do this at IT sometimes, yeah, right? And Sean is tall, so he can do it too, right? But yeah, we had a few tall guys. This very tall very cast. Yeah, oh and, and, yes, uh, yeah, we're missing Jacob Elordi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really yeah, we're missing him. Yeah, we had a really good death. <laughs> He's at Graceland right now. Okay. It's just huh. yeah. Uh, Keith Person also. He's short compared to those guys. <laughs> it's not that short. He's here. Well, thank you so much. It's a really great film. I'm really, really excited. We're here with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here.